All right. Good evening. And thank you each and every one of you for being here for the eighth Elephant in the Room session at First Colony Christian Church. And we're very uh, honored to have everyone take an interest in tonight's topic. Uh, I'm going to be moderating, and I'm going to give sort of the framework of how this evening is going to go, and then we're going to turn it over to our two presenters for tonight. And our topic for this evening is God and Evil, a Christian Theodicy. Is that right? Theodicy? Theodicy. All right, good. Um, but first, let's talk about format and what we're here to do. First and foremost, we are here to provoke thought. This is not an attempt to tell you that you're right or you're wrong. Uh, this is not an attempt to lay down a specific theology or liturgical stance for this church. This is merely an open forum to deal with a topic that most Christians historically would prefer to avoid. And by being here tonight and being, by participating, we're actually behaving in a manner that follows Christianity all the way back to its inception and even before that with the Jewish rabbis and teaching of Israel. So um, we're going to have an opening prayer uh, once I'm done with the whole format, and then I will turn the table over to Jimmy, who will be our first presenter for this this evening, excuse me, and he will be presenting the position of classical theism, and then I will turn it over to Mike, who will be presenting the uh, position of open theism. Now, these positions that they have are not necessarily their personal stances. Please do not take it as such. What we've done is we've identified two sides of a discussion, and we have asked two members of our church to research those positions and then present them in a digestible format for you to understand and hear. This has nothing to do with their personal beliefs. And so please don't walk out of here with a, uh, a, uh, a preconceived notion of who these people are spiritually based off of the position they're presenting. There's another side to that coin. This is an open discussion and everyone should feel comfortable in here with whatever ideas they want to explore. So please, when it comes time to open questions from the audience, do not look at the person next to you and assume that because of their question, they hold certain beliefs either. This is an opportunity for exploration. So no judgment and no assignation of perspective to anybody on either side of the fence. Is that clear? Is there any questions about that or how that's being handled? No. Great. All right. Um, We've got a couple of principles, uh, just to kind of clarify, uh, this is not a debate, uh, this is not an argu argument, and as I've already kind of talked about, it's not an authoritative answer. Um, we are going to be considering this, this specific topic today from a biblical Christian perspective. Does that mean that when you ask questions, you, you, you cannot go outside of textual or scriptural uh, basis? No, not necessarily. But what it means is, is that when any answers you receive and uh, any direction discussion turns needs to be from an understanding that we're Christians and we're trying to deal with this topic in a Christian manner, uh, using the authority and the guidance that is holy ours to use, which is the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and, uh, well, 
the various books that they have at their disposal, which they'll uh, talk about or not. Um, we also believe in a belief called pervasive interpretive pluralism. Uh, at the end of the day, you've all got this sheet. We can all kind of read. But uh, at the end of the day, what this means is, is that it is okay for us to interpret things different and still be Christians. Now, there are certain core beliefs that kind of define Christianity that are not open to interpretation. You can take that up with Pastor Mike on your own later. Uh, but for tonight, we're not wandering into those specific territories. Uh, we're keeping things from a position of it's okay to think differently than the guy next to you. Because at the end of the day, what we all agree on is that Christ is Lord. Okay. Um, then the uh, only other thing to talk about is, is even though we're dealing with things that are kind of open to interpretation and we're allowing ourselves to have different opinions, we also recognize, coming out of a Christian faith, that there is a definite, concrete right and wrong. We, from our perspective, have limits and flaws, and we're doing our best to grope and wrestle and understand with... Um, a reality that is beyond our ability sometimes to fully grasp. That does not mean that it does not exist. It most certainly does. And we're always striving to try to understand fully the true truth out there and the reality behind these topics. So that's kind of what we're doing. Now, we want to keep it gentle and respectful when we talk about language and when we talk about uh, interaction. Now, there's a lot of opportunity specifically the topics in our Elephant in the Room session, for emotion to get involved. And uh, it's okay to get emotional if you have a very strong stance, but it, please be careful when you present a question or when you listen to uh, just do so respectfully, uh, both of yourselves, of our presenters, and the other people in the room. Any questions about any of those things before we progress? Okay, great. We're going to hear 15 minutes. I'm going to tell them 15 minutes. We'll probably hear 20. Um, we're going to go back and have a 10-minute. It's not a rebuttal. It's a response. So he's not deliberately going to try to sabotage what he just heard. He is simply just going to, from the position that he is presenting, provide a response to what he said. And then he will get the same for a like amount of time. And then we're going to open the floor as moderator. I'm going to do my best to make sure everybody gets a chance to be heard and that nobody monopolizes. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to try to keep it on topic. And that's going to be a little difficult tonight in compared to previous Elephant in the Rooms if you participated. I'm almost done talking, I promise. You didn't come here to, you didn't come here to listen to me talk. You came here to these guys, I know. I'm almost done. Uh, but the reason is, is because usually up to this point, our topics are extremely clear-cut. They're way over there, and these people are way over here. Um, this topic is cut a little bit more fine. And we need to come to this particular topic of God and evil, of Christian theodicy, uh, from a perspective of exactly what we're here to talk about. Um, both positions are approaching it from the idea that evil does not spring from God. I think we, I hope we can all kind of agree with that. But for us to fully engage and participate in this conversation tonight, we have to start with the beginning place of evil is not of God, 
right? We're dealing with this separately. Okay. <coughs> Classical theism is going to be God doesn't cause evil, but allows and permits and uses it as part of his sovereign will and plan for creation. We'll let Jimmy explain how, what that all that means. Uh, oh, Mike is going to be presenting open theism. Evil originates completely outside of God's will in the decisions of free human and spiritual creatures. God is opposed to evil and is working to eradicate it from the world. Uh, and we'll let Mike talk about that. So, if there, before we begin, are there any other further questions? All right, well then let's take a quick prayer and let's get going. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together in fellowship to wrestle with these topics and ideas. Uh, we are truly blessed to have the support of one another as we deal with topics that no single person should ever have to address in solitude. Therefore, please guide us and grant us wisdom and the ability to understand and also to be respectful as we talk about this tonight. And please allow each and every one of us to leave the room tonight changed in some way or fashion based off of discussion from here tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Jimmy. It is 7.43. Kick it off. Okay. Uh, my position is the traditional position. Um, now, traditional is sort of, there's a spectrum there, so it can go all the way up to a hyper-Calvinist position. Uh, I will probably be articulating more of a uh, medial Calvinist position, and then there's the Armenian, Armenian position, um, where the difference in human free will is taken uh, either to the extreme portion in hyper-Calvinism, where it's sort of fatalistic and there is no such thing as free will, to the Armenian position where free will um, interacts with God's will, uh, and the two do not cross over. Uh, my position officially is called compatibilism. Um, that's a position articulated by D.A. Carson in How Long, O God, um, How Long, O Lord. Uh, but as we get started, uh, it's important to start with the existence of evil. Uh, as Jake said, my position that God is not responsible for the existence of evil. Um, where evil comes into play is in the garden when the man and woman both disobey the only command that they're given to not eat of the fruit of the tree of uh, good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and so that has particular consequences for their situation in the garden and extends even to, in, in my position, even to our situation now. So it has affected humanity from the first pair, uh, however you want to interpret Genesis 1 and 2, unto uh, the recreation, new heavens and new earth. Uh, and so I'd like to read a portion of, of Genesis 3, just the uh, starting with where God is uh, giving the curses based on why the curses that occur to humanity because of their disobedience. Um, so starting in 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and, your, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, uh, and you shall eat all the plants of the field. Uh, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, uh, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in the passage we see that there are consequences not only for the serpent who will sort of disregard and and move to the side uh, for a second, but there are consequences for both of the humans in the couple, Eve and Adam, uh, and the ground. So the ground is cursed uh, because of their disobedience, um, which is an important, plays an important role uh, in our world today. Um, And so as sin enters, this affects everything, the way we relate to God as human beings, the way God's chosen people relate to God, uh, and the way the, the world now exists. Uh, and so the next portion, I'd like to articulate what compatibilism actually is, uh, that now that we understand that evil is in existence and has come about through the human's disobedience. So, so some will that they have exerted on their own, God is not seen as responsible for the, transgre- the transgressions anywhere in the text, nowhere in the New Testament is God seen as responsible for uh, the initial transgression. Um, so compatibilism holds two, two points to be true. One, that God is absolutely sovereign, uh, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. So God is control over everything, but never in such a way that whenever a human being does something that they are not culpable, that they do not have any moral responsibility for their actions. And then two, that human beings are morally responsible creatures, uh, and they significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions, so whether for good or for bad. Uh, But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. So a human being's choice to obey or, or to disobey is never going to put God in such a position where, where he is contingent upon their either belief or disbelief, or obedience or disobedience. Uh, so the two of those, uh, in philosophical language, should not go together. Right? They, if you hold one, you should not be able to hold the other. Uh, if, if you were giving a philosophy paper... I think that your teacher would say that you're holding to uh, uh, what's that called? Contradiction. A contradiction that those two those two things can't be true at the same time. Uh, but in Christian theology, we have uh, lots of these things that should be contradictions, uh, but because of Scripture, we say that they actually aren't. So the Trinity would be a great example of this. Uh, the Trinity, the doctrine that God is both three persons, but is one God. Um, I mean, in physics, there's no such thing as a thing that is three and one at the same time. That should be impossible in the world that we live in. But the Christian position, and from Scripture we know that we worship one God, and then in multiple places in Scripture we see all three of them, all three of the persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, appear in one place at one time. 
yet we say we worship one God. So uh, another, another example would be um, uh, the, the two natures of, of Christ. So God's, or Jesus' <coughs> nature of being fully God and fully human, that he is both of those things at the same time. Uh, thinking out about the world that we live in physically, that's impossible to hold two natures at the same time. Yet, it's the Christian position that that's exactly what does happen. Uh, so, though it is not philosophically articulated uh, in language that might be held by philosophers, this is the, what I'm saying is the Christian position that humans are responsible for their actions, but that God is fully sovereign and controls his world. Both of those things are true. Um, now, I have to say that there is, well, we'll move into uh, the next, so the, I'm going to respond to three hypothetical situations or uh, uh, types of situations within this position. Uh, so we're going to respond to how God is present or sovereign in natural disasters and actual human moral evil, uh, and then how God is is sovereign over his own people. And so with, with natural disasters, um, we see in Scripture, which is the basis of my position, um, that, that natural disasters exist because of the fall. So in Genesis 3, we see the ground being cursed. Uh, we see it not bringing forth fruit with ease, but the man is having to sweat to bring forth the fruit. Uh, and so this would be the... The way that we would articulate this is natural disasters occur because of the fall. So as the result of sin, the world doesn't work the way that it should. And so there are things like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and mudslides and forest fires, uh, which do actual damage to real people uh, in, a, in a fire. Just recently, 19 firefighters were killed. That is a, a natural disaster that caused real evil. Uh, people actually died because of that. Uh, and in Romans 8, uh, we see this articulated again. Uh, we can read that. Eight, starting in verse 20. So Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. And so this too would just be further proof that the creation is still... Uh, the, the metaphorical language being used is that it's in childbirth, it's in the pangs of childbirth, uh, so that it's waiting for something to come to fruition. It's waiting for... Uh, you and I, the church, to come to full fruition. Uh, but until that point, there is going to be a sense of chaos, a, thing, a sense of things are not working properly uh, in creation. And so you have things like natural disaster. Um, and so that presents us with two, two ways to view things like natural disasters. Uh, one, we can say it's just the result of sin. And so rules of nature, natural law, are now governing the outside world, 
and things just don't work the way they ought to, but things are in a general state of chaos. So nobody's really in control, but because of, because of sin from the garden and continuing on, the, the natural order has been uh, upset, and things just happen in a sense of uh, craze with no real order. So things like hurricanes and earthquakes, that sort of stuff, would happen because things aren't as they ought to be. There's nobody really in control of those things, so God is not sovereign over those natural disasters. And this would be more of the Arminian position that natural disasters are just occurring because we live in a world affected by sin. Um, and that that's just the way that happens now. And as the new heavens and new earth come, the earth itself will be redeemed and those natural disasters won't happen anymore. Uh, but there are some places in Scripture, a lot of places in Scripture that show God himself to be the one who is orchestrating and even in control of things like natural evil, uh, calamity it's called in some places. Uh, so uh, I would like to read Psalm 107, and we'll start in verse uh, 23. Psalm 107, starting in verse one, uh, 23. So some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on, on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage meted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works. So here we see that God is in control. Uh, here it's it's in both directions of the storm. So he commanded the storm to start, and whenever his people prayed, he commanded the storm to quiet. Uh, and there are other places where God is in control of winds. Um, I'm not sure if I can remember a passage where he's in control of an earthquake specifically. But it would be the, the position of, uh, of the classical theist that God is in control of those, even of those natural disasters. They are still the result of sin but they are not outside of his control, outside of his sovereignty. Uh, and he uses them, uh, well, he has multiple ways that he can use uh, those things. To some, to some extent, you could say that things like that just happen, so they are a part of the world we live in. They're a result of sin. And so uh, even D.A. Carson in in the book How Long, O Lord, says it is uh, theologically negligent to say that they're, that natural calamities are always the result of some sin, of some particular action of humans, uh, outside of sin broadly. So like um, the sin of that happened in the garden and just the, the broken nature of the current world. Uh, so it's not always wise or even uh, possible 
I would think, to say that there is always some particular reason for a natural disaster. Uh, I would say that it is quite possible to say that even though God is in control and sovereign over all things, that he may not be doing it for a specific, this is the sin that I'm punishing with this tidal wave, that it's for some reason like that. Uh, I, w- I would agree with Carson that that would be theologically negligent to uh, be looking at every hurricane or tornado that happens and try to assign uh, some theological heresy to the reason behind it. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that God is not sovereign, that God is not in control uh, of those disasters. Uh, and sometimes he actually does use things like that for his purposes. There are some places in scripture uh, that tell us this explicitly. So if we can turn to Isaiah 45. start in verse 6. Actually, we'll start in verse 5. He says, I am Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west uh, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So here he's, he's claiming responsibility for the whole realm of human experience. He creates well-being. If you live in peace, uh, that's the Lord who did that. If, if you live in calamity, if uh, you're in a drought, well, the Lord did that as well. He's claiming responsibility for that in Scripture. Um, the next place we would turn is, is Amos 4. Here is a more direct passage for uh, where God actually claims a specific reason for the reason that he's for uh, calamity. So he's talking to a specific group of, of women within the, the nation of Israel. That's just, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the, le- even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out with the, with the breeches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings and publish them. For so you you love to do, O people of Israel. Here we go. Uh, I give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. So he's uh, brought famine, a lack of food, cleanness of teeth. There's nothing stuck in their teeth because they haven't eaten. Okay. I also withheld the rain from you where there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain to another. One field would have rain, and the, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city and drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured. 
yet you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into, the, into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. So here he's using natural evil as well as, in verse 10, uh, moral evil from other people. Uh, he's using natural evil against his own people so that they would return to him. So there's an explicit purpose given by him for this use of natural evil. Uh, so again, that's only this one instance that... That's not to say that every instance of natural evil, every instance of drought, uh, would be the God saying, you need to return to me. Uh, that would not be what my position, the way my position would articulate its point. But that God is sovereign and can use things like natural evil to correct, to um, harden uh, his people. Sorry. Uh, so next would be human moral evil. So that the, this, my position holds that God's sovereignty extends over all created things. Uh, so if you look at Isaiah 42. How long do I have? You got 20 minutes. Uh, I'm at 20 minutes? You're at 20, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay, though. I mean, wrap up well, and, cl okay. and close your eyes. Uh, the, the only point would be that, okay, so he's responsible in, in, uh, over people as well, so his sovereignty extends over people. Uh, my position would hold that he, in Scripture, God is never blamed for evil. So even whenever he tells a prophet that I'm going to bring some moral evil against you to, uh, to correct you uh, for my own people, that he is never blamed by that prophet for being evil. They say, why would you do this to us? You're a good God. But never. the only place where God is ever questioned of being evil would be in Job, and he is quickly hastened for doing such a thing like that. Uh, and so my position would hold that within that, God's people are usually, uh, God's sovereignty is seen over God's people for three purposes, either discipline for committed sin, uh, disciplining of strengthening Christian character, so... Uh, if there's about to be a situation where you need to be stronger in an area, and then just part of living in a world where sin exists. Okay. That would be the basic. Thank Sorry you, Jimmy. So That's long. classical theism. And now we're going to hear the other perspective, open theism. All right? Okay. Well, uh, as we get started, I'll start talking about evil. Uh, I think it's important for us to, at all times, remember that this is a personal and very practical issue. So for a lot of us, that evil things happen to us, uh, and so we've probably, if you're a human, wondered why God allows evil, why there's evil in the world, those kind of things. And also, I think it's important to realize that when we talk about evil, we need to talk in concrete terms. Uh, you can't reduce evil to a statistic or to a, a nameless face uh, or a random kind of person. Um, so there's a quote uh, by Urban Greenberg, and he says this, no statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of the burning children in the Holocaust. Uh, so you might think that's just like emotional, emotional blackmail, right? Emotional guilt. Um, but when you're talking about evil, right, and, and God's culpability in evil and those kind of things, you should be prepared to say those kind of things. I mean, you should, you should run through in your mind, could I say this to a child, right, uh, who's burning in the Holocaust? There's horrible, horrible evils that happen in the world, uh, and, and when we deal with things like the Odyssey, it's important to keep that in mind and to make sure that, that what we're saying is legitimate. Um, it's also important to remember that, uh, particularly in our context, we are talking out of a place of privilege, so we don't experience much of the evil of the world. Um, 
the people who wrote the scriptures did experience that evil, uh, and much of the world today does experience that evil in a way that, uh, from my position, would make them more likely to understand why uh, you might talk less about God being in control when the world around you looks so out of control um, to you. So open theism is a, a, a belief that God doesn't actually know the future. Okay, um, It's not because God doesn't know everything. It's because for open theists, philosophically, the future doesn't actually exist as like an actual thing to be known. So the future is only possibilities. So God knows possibilities. God knows you might choose this or might choose this and might choose this and might choose this, um, but doesn't know the actual future until it actually happens. Right um, Now, uh, it's become a big deal okay, in the evangelical church over the last few years. People have, have debated it and freaked out over it. I don't actually think you need open theism itself to go with my position. I think a kind of solid Arminianism, which is firm belief in free will, will be able to do it for you. Um, but we labeled it open theism. So first point here as we get started is the Bible portrays God at war. It's important. God at war with free agents that oppose his plan, oppose his intention, and oppose his will for creation. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The implication, right, from the very prayer that we're given is that God's will does not always happen on the earth, right? Creation and history is not one big expression of God's will. Um, we have to pray and we have to seek for God's will to be done on earth. Um, this seems like a very fundamental point, right? Not everything that happens is what God wanted to happen. God doesn't want those children to die. God doesn't want these evil things to happen in the world. This is not his perfect plan for creation, God doesn't sit back and go, I know what would be good to create a group of people who kill each other systematically uh, and who torture and rape and abuse little kids and those kind of things. Um, and the scriptures portray a God who's very much at war with the evil uh, in his creation. So in the Old Testament, you see this, um, but we often miss it in the Old Testament. We don't know what to look for exactly. Um, in the Old Testament, though, in three ways particularly, you see this warfare motif. And I think we often operate in a blueprint understanding of the world. So God has a blueprint for the world and involves evil, right? He uses it and controls it, even though he might not be morally responsible for it. Um, but everything's going according to plan, right? And this is what we tell people when bad things happen. Don't worry. It fits into part of the plan. Um, the warfare worldview would say not everything's going according to plan. That's the point of it. Um, things have gone off track and things have happened that God didn't want to have happen. Um, so in the Old Testament, you see Yahweh, uh, the God uh, of the Old Testament of Israel, battling against waters, Okay, the sea, chaos, which represents chaos and evil. You see him battling against monsters, actually. I don't know if you know this. There are these big cosmic monsters in the Old Testament. Uh, and you see him battling against other gods, actually, as well. Um, again, we kind of miss over this uh, as we read through it. But over and over again, Yahweh will rebuke the waters. He'll make them flee. He'll make them take flight. He'll set their boundaries. He tramples on them. He sits enthroned over them. Um, and there's no suggestion that this battle is inauthentic, right? That he's really controlling the waters. He actually is the waters in some sort, right? But he's just pretending to fight against them. No, the Israelites actually believed there was this evil, sinister force, the chaotic waters, the deep seas, and Yahweh, in some sense, was controlling them. He was fighting against them. He was making sure that the chaos didn't break, off, uh, break out over the world. There are monsters in the Old Testament, the Leviathan, which is this kind of ferocious serpent in the sea. Uh, there's smoke and fire and all these cool things. This is in Psalm 74, Isaiah 27, Rahab, another monster. God fights against these monsters. Yahweh protects his people from these monsters. There are actually other gods in the Old Testament, or sons of gods, maybe angels, okay, depending on how you interpret it. But in Genesis 6, these angels go out of God's will, okay, come down and marry humans. It's a really weird story, right? We don't often talk about it, we don't think about it. Um, but God gets really upset about it. This is one of the reasons God kills everybody from the Genesis text, right? The, the flood comes, right? Um, because these angels have done something he didn't want him, uh, he didn't want them to come do. They had this kind of free will in a sense. Um, in Daniel 10, um, which we'll begin to in our, our sermon series, Daniel's praying to God for uh, protection and deliverance, and that doesn't come. 
And Daniel doesn't say, oh, that's because God had a plan, right, to say no. An angel actually shows up and says, I couldn't get here, right? I wanted to, I wanted to come, but there are other forces at work in creation um, that were opposing God's will. Um, and again, over and over again, throughout Old Testament, you see God's will is thwarted. God's will does not always happen exactly the way he wants it to have happened because he's created free agents. In the New Testament, there's this battle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus consistently refers to Satan as the prince of this present age. Um, the word prince there, icon, the highest official um, in this world. Jesus doesn't dispute the claim in Luke 4 that, Jesus, uh, that Satan has authority over all the kingdoms of the world. Satan says, I'll offer them to you if you bow down to me. Jesus doesn't say, you're silly, you don't even have those kingdoms, right? He says, no worry, I'll get them, but a different way. I'm not going to do it by, by worshiping you. In 1 John 5, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4, Satan is the god of this world. Ephesians 2, he's the ruler of the power of the air. And in Ephesians 5, we're told to put on the armor of God. There's this really strong warfare motif, again, running throughout the uh, scriptures. One of the overall statements in the scriptures about why Jesus actually came was to destroy the works of the devil. Um, now, classical theism would have us believe that this is all one big pretend battle, right? I mean, this is actually God doing these things. Um, God is ultimately behind this. It's all part of his one will. And it's kind of this disingenuous kind of battle. Why is God working so hard against these things if in some sense he allowed or permitted or caused them um, to happen and to come into creation? In the New Testament, um, illness, disease, spiritual blindness, episodes of demonization are all identified as part of Satan's work. Uh, in Luke 13, um, when there's a woman who's diseased, uh, Jesus says she's been bound up by Satan. In Acts um, the apostles say Jesus went around casting out diseases um, and casting out uh, demons uh, and destroying the devil's work. Okay? At no point does Jesus ever suggest this is part of God's eternal plan. Um, Jesus comes and he says, this is wrong. This is not the kingdom. Um, this is not God's will. And I'm bringing the kingdom. I'm bringing God's will. And so these things will be done away with. Um, so again, I think we need to walk away from the blueprint worldview uh, and embrace a warfare worldview where unfortunately God does not always get his way. Uh, he desires all to be saved. You see this in 1 Timothy, 2 Peter 3. We know that all will not be saved. The reason for this is because God gave human and spiritual creatures what we call libertarian free will. Um, libertarian free will simply means they have the ability to choose good or bad. To the extent that they could choose good is also the extent that they could choose bad. Um, people have wondered, why would God do this? If there's a good chance, right, that they're going to choose evil, the world's going to get messed up. Well, because you can't have love. You can't have a relationship. You can't have the world that God desired um, without that kind of true free will. Imagine trying to love a robot, um, those kind of things. This is one of the problems with classical theism. They assert God's sovereign, um, but that sovereignty takes away any sense of kind of free will. Um, and it's not actually uh, explicit in any of the scriptures, and, and we'll get to that um, so uh, God uh, gives libertarian free will. There's actual say-so in the creatures he creates, okay? This is often overlooked by us. Um, God um, is in complete control, okay? That's why we say he's sovereign. He gives those creatures free will, right? I mean, he, it's out of his free self-giving. He says, I will give you this ability, but it's a real ability nonetheless to have say-so in his creation, to be able to do things and sometimes be able to thwart his will. Um, and again, without libertarian free will, I think you have God as the cause of evil. Um, I don't think compatible is free will, um, where God's still sovereign actually gets you out of that problem. I think it's, I think philosophically there's a reason this doesn't work in the language um, because it actually does make God morally culpable for that evil. Now, we would say the freedom here is the reason for moral responsibility. Like we said, without libertarian free will, an agent can't be held morally accountable. Um, compatible is freedom does not explain uh, how moral responsibility works for that. Um, if he actually gave us uh, say-so, um, what truth is there in saying that our say-so is actually his say-so, 100% of the time? Um, 
I mean, it's a logical contradiction. So we'll, we'll probably get to this. There's a big difference between a mystery and a paradox and a contradiction. Um, a contradiction is saying one thing and then saying the exact opposite at the same time. And even Christians can't embrace contradictions. Once you do that, language has no meaning. I mean, you, we Christians, Christian theologians says God can't make a triangle with four sides. Why can't he do that? Because by definition, a triangle has three sides. God can't do things that contradict themselves. Um, and if he can, there's no point of talking about anything because everything is meaningless. Um, now, a uh, doctrine like the Trinity is not a contradiction, right? The Trinity is actually not God is one, God is three. The Trinity is God is one nature, three persons. Christians were very careful to use different language so that it's not a contradiction. Now, it's a paradox. It's mysterious. We don't actually understand how it works. Um, but God's not two different numbers. God's one nature, or person, or uh, uh, one nature, one substance, and then three persons. It's a paradox. Um, this freedom is also irrevocable. Some have wondered if God gives the creatures these freedom, this freedom and then sees them do horrible things with it, why doesn't he take it away? Well, again, with libertarian free will, if you take it away as soon as something bad happens or knowing that something bad will happen, it wasn't free to begin with, right? Again, you're stuck in this problem. You can't have the actual world that God wanted to create. Um, Alvin Plantiga uh, does a good job. Um, he's a, a famous philosopher um, kind of walking through this. So, as Christians, the God revealed to us is the God of Jesus, and, and the God of Jesus is holy good. He does not will evil. I've got a quote from David Bentley Hart. He says, If it is from Christ that we are to learn how God relates himself to sin, suffering, evil, and death, it would seem that he provides as little evidence of anything other than a regal, relentless, and miraculous enmity. Sin he forgives, suffering he heals, evil he casts out, and death he conquers. And absolutely nowhere does Christ act as if any of these things are part of the eternal work or purposes of God. So we'd say, therefore, all evil originates in the will of human or spiritual free agents. This is a point we often miss. There are, according to the scripture, spiritual free agents. We can't only uh, explain evil in terms of what we do or what God does. There are other forces that we're not aware of doing things as well. We see this throughout the scriptures, and Daniel is one example of this. Um, so we talk about sovereignty, and we assume often that sovereignty means this kind of meticulous control, that God controls every single action and thought and, and movement and those kind of things. Um, nowhere in the scriptures, though, and, and all the examples we'll look at tonight, that's always overreaching what the Bible actually says. Um, so God is sovereign. He's in control. The outcome is never in question. Okay, He's chosen what limits to set, how much freedom to give, those kind of things. Um, but he's much smarter than we are. He's much wiser than we are. Um, and so nowhere is, is the, the outcome in question. But sovereignty, right? God is in control. We can trust him. Those kind of things. God will win. Doesn't necessarily mean, and, and no scriptures will teach us this, that he's behind every single human action, every single angelic action, those kind of things. Um, we'll talk about natural evil in a second. Um, these are often attributed to Satan and evil powers in the scriptures. Um, God responds to evil with good, okay? But God doesn't cause the evil for good. This is Romans 8, right? So evil actions happen, and God reacts to those evil actions by bringing good in all the things God works for the good of those who love him and cause him. But God doesn't actually cause the evil and then cause the good and then say, hey, praise me for causing that good, right? Um, he doesn't create the situation and then get us out of it, um, so again, particularly, we just can't posit a specific divine reason for the behavior of beings who resist God's will. Now, when it comes to natural evil, um, we would say uh, an open theist or a free will theist, again, I think you can do this just as an Arminian, um, says natural evil should not be attributed to God, but to the reality of a supremely fallen world and the free agency of spiritual beings. Um, there are demons, there are, there are Satan, things are, are happening that, that we're not always aware of. So again, try to keep it real, try to keep it practical and personal. Um, there was a young boy, okay, four or five years old. He got a rare brain tumor uh, and died. 
six or seven people in the U.S. each year reported to have this tumor, okay? These parents are very strong Christians. When, when a son was struggling and when a son was dying, um, the answer they got from most people was that God did this and that God caused this, their son to have this tumor, right? It was all part of God's plan. Um, God at least allowed it or permitted it, but he was going to use it for good, right? And these parents had a hard time understanding uh, how they could trust a God like that, how they could believe in a God like that. They could not see the good that could come out of it. Um, they could, in their limited wisdom, think of all kinds of ways that good could come out of him being alive, right? Or being saved or, or miraculously healed, those kind of things. Um, actually, though, they wrote a letter to their son. They, they came across this idea of theodicy, um, where God doesn't actually, he's completely at all times opposed to bad things in creation. So a little boy dying of tumor is not God's plan, ever. God never sits down and says, I'm going to do that, or I'm going to use that, or I'd like that to happen in the world. Um, evil beings decide that that should happen, and God has consistently from day one been working against those forces. They wrote a letter to their son, Henry. I want to read it to you. Our precious Henry, they write, several years ago we were living in a tiny apartment. Daddy was at work and I took a test. I'd taken pregnancy tests before, but this one was different. Sounds weird to say. This one showed two lines. At that moment, I was struck by the symbolism, a line for me and a line representing the life I was now responsible for, the life I'd cherish and enjoy the rest of my days. That was my plan, and I believe it was God's plan, too, for the child to grow up and for them to have a loving family. Enjoying your first two years was more, more everything than your dad and I thought it would be, more difficult, um, than we thought it would be, more rewarding than we ever suspected it would be. Your sweet laugh always compelled us to laugh along. Um, we were blown away by your creativity, by your intelligence. We speculated you'd be an engineer or a surgeon or do something to maximize your potential. That was our plan. We believe it was God's plan too. When your little sister came along, uh, we knew you'd be lifelong friends. That was our plan. We believe it was God's plan too. The year preceding your earthly death was difficult. We tried and tried but couldn't understand the challenges you faced. We had no knowledge of the disease, but we learned about grace, forgiveness, patience, and perseverance during this time. We giggled, we played, we worked, but eventually your body began to show outward signs that made us grasp the source of your affliction. When we learned of your brain tumor, we prayed. Thousands prayed. We demanded in prayer. We begged in prayer. We took authority in prayer. We took personal inventories, confessed our own shortcomings in prayer. We gathered with groups in prayer. We wept silently, alone in prayer. We did everything we could think of to strengthen our prayers for a miraculous healing. A miraculous healing was our plan, and we believe that once you became sick, it was God's plan, too. So many are quick to sign God's name to your vicious disease, to your suffering, to your death. In the Old Testament, Job attributed his suffering to God too. But after God confronted Job on his lack of understanding about the complexity of the universe, Job repented, admitting he'd spoken of things he didn't know about. Your dad and I also don't know. We don't know why it was that you suffered and died so young. We don't know why the thousands of prayers didn't work. We just do not know. But some things we do know. We know there is much going on behind the scenes of this fallen world, a world tremendously influenced by God's powerful adversary. We know that spiritual warfare invades our lives, often leaving devastation in its wake. We also know, according to the Bible, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. We know that he came to give life and life more abundantly. So we know that your pain, your death, did not come from God, but from an evil place. And we know one more crucial thing, how to fight back. We'll fight back with surrender. We'll surrender the anger, the despair, the defeat we feel. We'll lay these things at the feet of Jesus. Um, we pledge, they, they go on, I'll try to shorten it here, they pledge to live a life that loves sacrificially. They said that's, our now, that's now our plan, and that's always God's plan as well. But you see the difference there, right, in a response to natural evil. Um, this had to do somehow with God's plan versus this wasn't God's plan, okay? Now, can we explain why things happen that aren't God's plan? Not always. Do we know and have good evidence that lots of things happen in the world um, that aren't God's idea uh, and aren't God's perfect plan for creation? I think scripturally um, and experientially we can. David Bentley Hart says this, uh, as for comfort, so a lot of people say if God doesn't control everything that happens in the world, how can we be comforted, right? 
I mean, it just sucks to be us. You might get a brain tumor and die. There's nothing I can do about it. People have free will. Demons have free will. Um, Hit Hart says this, though. As for comfort when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, mm. but the face of his enemy. Mm. When you see the death of a child, you're not seeing the face of God, but the face of his enemy. Um, and there's no, nothing more comfortable than that. Now, moral evil, we'll wrap it up. Moral evils, human on human, likely, uh, likewise should not be attributed to God, but to the reality of the evil use of human and sometimes superhuman free will. So even there's principalities and powers. Demons can sometimes work through humans, those kind of things. There's much in the world, um, even superhuman, that influences human behavior. Um, but again, it's not God doing those things. It's evil humans are doing those things. God doesn't want those things to happen. God is consistently trying to get humans not to do those things. It's duplicitous for God to also be, at one hand, the cause of that or the, the source of that. So think about Sandy Hook Elementary, right, to keep it real. Kids died. They were shot. If you're a classical theist, you have to imagine, okay, this is part of God's plan, which means it couldn't have not happened. Um, God has a plan for a great universe. If something doesn't go according to plan, the universe won't be as good, right? So this has to happen in, in classical theist terms. Think about all the things that have to go in to that, that tragedy for that to take place. God has to make sure the killer notices certain kids and doesn't notice other kids, that certain bullets fire the right way and certain bullets don't fire the right way. Um, all the little details of life that God has to be actively involved in for tragedies like that to happen. We often just say, well, God has a plan and use these cliches, not realizing how horrendous that picture makes God look in, in some cases if these things are part of God's plan. Open theists would say, or free will theists would say, this isn't God's plan. God never sits down and says, let's have kids be shot. Okay, That's not how God does things. God dies for kids. Mm. Um, he doesn't kill them. There's a big difference between the two. Um, David Bentley Hart was asked how he would respond to someone asking about a tragedy like this. And he says, I honestly don't know. I don't have a pastoral bone in my body, which if you know him or have heard him talk, that's true. Um, but he says, I would implore pastors never to utter banal consolations concerning God's greater plan or the mystery of his will. The first proclamation of the gospel is that the death uh, is that death is God's ancient enemy, whom God has defeated and will ultimately destroy. I would hope no Christian pastor would fail to recognize that the completely shameless triumphalism in the gospel, um, and with it an utterly sincere and unrestrained hatred of suffering and death. This is the surest foundation of Christian hope and the proper Christian response to grief. Now I'll close with some practical importance. Um, I think two reasons this is important. One, um, open theists would say you've got to have the right view of God. Okay, so hard again to say it's a strange thing to find peace in a universe rendered morally intelligible at the cost of a God rendered morally loathsome. Right? So you understand why the universe works this way, but then you realize it was God who did all these evil things, um, or at least had it as part of his plan. Um, God's character is not a mystery. Um, his sovereignty is. Okay? The way he works and the way he influences the world, those kind of things are mysterious. There's all kinds of hidden things going on in the world. Complex agents, and they have free will. They do things. Scripture is so clear about this. That is very mysterious. You don't often know what happens on a war zone, right? Like Daniel praying. He doesn't know what's going on between God's actions and his experience on the earth. Um, but God's character is never a mystery. Even Jimmy points this out. No one ever questions that God's good and wants to do good things. Um, and then also, classical theism tends to lend itself to a, a lifestyle of resignation. So if this is all part of God's will, kind of get along to go along. Right? I mean, there's not much for us to do. In fact, logically, morally, we might be like, well, this is bad, we should work against it. But logically, there's no reason to. You're working against God himself at a certain level. Um, this is just supposed to happen. It's part of God's plan. Instead, Christians should have a lifestyle of revolts. We should see evil in all forms, and we should say this is bad, this is wrong, and we're getting rid of it, just like God has desired to get rid of it and is working, too, through his kingdom. Um, for the early Christians and the early church, uh, they were aware well of the spiritual war, and it was the problem of evil they knew or cared about. They didn't ever wonder, right, um, 
you know, they assume this warfare worldview. As we look at scriptures, we're often just bringing this assumption in. Most of the scriptures won't speak directly to either side. It's, it's what you bring into them. Um, do you, are you concerned with saying this Greek philosophical concept that God has to control everything that happens in the world? Or do you have this kind of warfare worldview? Um, but for early Christians, I'll end with this. Um, this was a matter of aligning your life with God's will in Jesus. It was a problem, Greg Boyd says, solved by spiritual activism, not by intellectual contemplation or pious resignation. Um, we see evil in the world, and we're called to join with God and his son his kingdom to rule against it, um, not to try to figure out how this is some sort of secret, mysterious um, part of God's plan. And this is doing often maligning the character of God, the one we're supposed to trust and, and believe in, those kind of things. All right. Thank you, Mike. That is uh, the portion of open theism that applies to our discussion tonight. Um, Given the fact that both of you went slightly <laughs> north of the, uh, the 15 limit, um, the response, we have time budgeted up to 10 minutes. I'm not going to enforce it, but I'm, I'd like to ask each of you to try to keep it around 5 or 6. Okay, we can go forward. So, uh, Jimmy, please. Yeah. Uh, I take all those hits, and I would say that whenever you say God's plan is this, you know, where we're... God's people, or all people, are just resigned to live in a world where, you know, bad things just happen. I think it's important to notice that when sinners into the world, whenever human beings do something evil and they're culpable for that, that within the curse is also the promise that's given that there, that there is going to be one who comes from Adam who's going to crush the head of the serpent. From the very beginning of the curse, you have God's plan for how this is going to be cured. So he doesn't just leave the world to its own devices and say, well, I hope it all works out, or I'm going to pull as many strings as I can. But he, he brings his own creation into the plan of recreating, of reworking it, of making, making it what it was supposed to be from the beginning. And I think that what that brings to the table is an essence of God's mercy. So he could have said, okay, cure it all, stamp them out. But instead he allows for this creation that has gone off plan or who has disobeyed him to say, I'm going to incorporate them and bring them into the way this is supposed to be and actually use my disobedient creation to recreate this world and make it what it ought to be. And I think that's why it's such a horrible thing whenever uh, Israel or the church is disobedient and is found to be in morally... Uh, um, horrible positions where you have people in the church doing things that are grossly opposed to the new law. Uh, but I would say that we need to, that is God's plan, the church, the gospel, and that's why the church needs to be in places like Sandy Hook, stepping in front of bullets, that we need to be in places that are attacked by, that have been affected by tidal waves and earthquakes, helping people, being like Jesus living in a world affected by sin and helping to cure it by being with people and revive people who are in real suffering. Uh, just to respond to some of your things, um, you said that, that in Scripture there is a lot of battle going on. Uh, so God is attacking monsters in the sea and all that stuff. Uh, my question to you would be, does God ever lose any of those battles? Because I would say no. Every time you see God in battle with somebody, 
very quickly at the end of the story you see God winning that battle. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and then you say that there's a need for a libertarian free will. Uh, the, the classical response to this is, will there be libertarian free will in the new heavens and new earth? Will we be able to say, no, God, I will not love you, because that's the only way true love can exist is, the, is with the ability to deny that and be disobedient. Will we be able to deny God's love in the new heavens and the new earth? I would suggest no. I would suggest no as well. In fact, uh, libertarian free will does take into account freedom as a very complex topic in free will. You have behaviorism, right? A lot of what you do is actually determined by things you're not aware of, where you were raised, past actions you've taken, right? Um, so libertarian free will would say there's no, there's, it doesn't per se exist in the New Heavens and Earth, but because it existed now. Um, so you'll see this with scriptures as well, and, and this is where you have to play this out. If a person makes certain amount of choices in their life, right, over and over and over and over again, they form a solid kind of character, right, where it's very unlikely that they'll ever choose anything else. Um, they form certain desires, certain temptations, and those kind of things. Um, so this is why even an open theist would say free will is a temporary thing in that sense. Um, but it has to be, it has to exist even temporarily for love to be love, right? God could have created us originally to be like that in the new earth, but he didn't. There had to be this aspect of choosing to love him and choosing to follow him um, to the point where, again, that was solidified in our character, um, those kind of things. Um, does God lose battles? Okay, I'll take the hit there. Um, I think there's something to be said about looking at the cross uh, to answer that question. Um, sometimes it looks like God lose battles. Sometimes it looks like um, God is very patient about battles and those kind of things. Um, but again, we never question, is God fighting the battle? Or was God actually the one fighting both sides of the battle? Those kind of things. Um, I would... I would wonder what you would say to the idea that evil exists before Genesis 3. You have a serpent there that no one's talked about. Um, you also have chaos in Genesis 1, verse 2, which is, again, earth, water, um, very symbolic of chaos, evil. This is equals evil to an ancient person, which is why some people would postulate uh, between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, the fall of Satan. Um, so that what happens? God creates heaven and earth. The next thing you look at, it's all messed up. It's horrible. It's yuck. It's awful. Why does God create it like that? and then have to go through the process of organizing it and fixing it and those kind of things. Um, unless, again, someone uh, with free will had say-so in the world, but use it to say-so against God's uh, original plan and intention for creation. Um, again, I think with a lot of the scriptures, you just overreach your step. They say definitely God's in control, right? But you overreach your step say that means God controls everything, every natural disaster, every human action, those kind of things. So when God uses people who have evil actions... Um, sometimes with Joseph and his brothers, God says, I used your actions, right? This is part of my plan um, to, to what you intend for good or for bad, I intend for good. But again, nothing there says God eternally decided they would be bad. It's very possible. God sees them making these bad choices. They become bad people out of their libertarian free will. And then God says, well, I'm going to be able to use this, right? I'm going to be able to work this in my wisdom. You just often overstep what the text actually says because of a presumption, a presupposition you bring to it out of Greek philosophy that God has to be responsible for everything in some sense or another. He has to be the ultimate source of everything. Whereas in the scriptures, you see all kinds of other sources. Um, and you see God in, in, in actual legitimate, not disingenuous conflict with things that are happening in his creation. All right. Thank you both for uh, honoring my request. It is currently 833. <clears throat> We're going to open the floor to some questions. Uh, I will let everyone know when it is 9 o'clock. Uh, that's not an attempt. When you hear that, 
announcement. Hey, it's nine o'clock. Don't see that as a, an attempt to shut down conversation or proceedings, but more just an attempt to be considerate and respectful of your time uh, and your evening. All right, so anybody want to open up? All right, I'll open with a question for Mike. Oh. <laughs> uh, Mike, you mentioned the fact, uh, or rather your whole um, position, one thing that I found missing and would love to hear you talk about is how you can reconcile that with the extensive use of prophecy and foretelling through Old Testament and New Testament. I mean, if God doesn't see the future or is just kind of a reactionary God, how do we have, how do we, well, have every instance of God letting us know what it's going to be, what's going to happen, Jesus is going to come through. I would say a few things to that. Open Theist would say a few things to this. This is always a question they get asked a lot. Um, anything you read by Open Theist is going to have this kind of Q&A in it. Um, first one would be, there's, for as many prophecies as there are in the Old Testament, there are conditional statements. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do something else. As if there's a legitimate choice, and God's not exactly sure which way you're going to choose, but he can tell you how he's going to react to that choice. Um, you also have multiple instances in the Old Testament where God actually changes his mind. Um, Jimmy's a textual guy. He can tell us that change your mind means change your mind. God regrets. He feels sorrow. Uh, he doesn't see things coming, and is really upset that it happened that way. Um, I think a lot of the prophecies are very generic. Uh, you could actually probably make those prophecies based on predictions. Like, it seems pretty likely this is going to happen, and this is how I'm going to do it. God prophesies certain things to come true, and then actually doesn't come through on them because a nation repents or does certain things like that. You see this with the Syrians and Jonah. Um, so God seems to have this. It's a legitimate. If you do something different, I'll do something different. I'll respond in like kind. Um, now, there are some particular prophecies but and none of them are people named, right? So people are going to kill Christ. Uh, they'll divide his, his clothes and those kind of things. Um, again, this is not saying this one person in the first century eternally has to do these kind of things. But that in the world as God sees it, okay, with the plan he's implemented, um, these things are going to happen when his son comes into the world. Um, it's it's, it's a, a kind of a more open-ended type of prophecy. Um, so that would be, I think, uh, not a good one if you got a, like a... Greg Boyd, for instance, was in here. He'd probably give you a much better answer. But I know those are talking points they would touch on uh, as they go through an answer. Okay. I mean, in the Old Testament, one of the marks of a prophet is whether or not their words come true. So isn't that a little bit shaky ground for a prophet of God to be like, well, here's a prophecy, but there's a chance that it's not going to come true because some other chess piece might move in a direction that doesn't make it fulfill it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we're off track a little bit with prophecy. Um, since a prophecy is much more like now telling, right, than forth telling than in the future. Um, prophecy, we think of prophecy as like crystal ball. Most prophecy is like preaching, like uh, mm-hmm. giving you God's word directly. Um, and there are times, you again. You say in the Old Testament, most of it, I think, I mean. I, I think a, a majority think, I think of like, it. like Joseph. Yeah. What? So, so like he interprets the dreams that that Pharaoh had, and then you have seven years that happen. It's futuristic. There will be seven years yeah. of famine, or plenty, and then seven years of famine. Again, I think open theists would say you're, you you can have that right without it being exhaustively a foregone conclusion. With just this is how things are going to work. This is how history is going to work. A very, I mean. 
we're not very smart people, you and I, but most of us can look in a lot of situations and tell you what's going to happen in the next couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. How people are going to work because of the kind of people they are, the kind of circumstance they're in, those kind of things. Were you saying like with, with free will, you know, God knows if we make this choice, what can happen? If we make this choice, what can happen? Uh, but if we choose him, something else can definitely happen. And you see that over and over in the scriptures. And there are times, I mean, if you want to apply that principle to God himself, he would be a false prophet. Because God prophesies some things, non-conditional terms, I'm going to do this. And then they repent, something else happens. Um, surely you know the stories in the Old Testament where people actually change God's mind. They debate him about stuff. God tells Moses, I'm going to kill all the Israelites. They worship that golden cow. By the way, it's the stupidest thing they ever did. Um, and Moses says, don't do that. You need to calm down, God. Take a few moments. Collect your thoughts. And God says, you know what? You have good points, right? Abraham does this as well. God says, I'm doing this. He's actually talked out of it by human beings. Um, again, I mean, just things we kind of look over and don't take into account um, because of assumptions we bring to the, the, the narrative. So, it's, I mean, there are problems. Yes, I feel the tension there. But I think there are as many problems that we overlook in the other direction. Yeah. I, just, I mean, I would wonder if God speaking and interacting with people do the same as prophecy, which you said. It's not me applying this principle. It's Deuteronomy 18 that says, the prophet speaks the name of the Lord. And I'm with you, I mean, as far as questions, but if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken previously. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle, you had a question, and I see you about. Oh, yeah. I was going to direct some Jews like uh, <laughs> so uh, Jimmy I'd like to hear maybe your thoughts on a Sandy Hook situation mm. um, how would someone in the classical theist position respond to um, to that type of tragedy I'm not sure I haven't heard anybody interact with something specifically like that mm-hmm. but every moral evil. Right. Moral evil, they would say, my position would hold that the human being who committed that evil is responsible for that evil. Uh, That they have exerted their will to some extent. Uh, They actually have a will. That it's not some false thing that like God pretends that we have or something like that. We actually make choices. Uh, the, The problem comes in how we actually interact with God because we are contingent beings. We make choices. We don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. We don't know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, even if we're weather forecasters, that sort of thing. But God is omniscient. He is uh, transcendent. And so the problems for, for us in understanding God's will and how he reacts and is sovereign over situations like that come in his responding to us, him being a transcendent being, responding to us who are, uh, uh, I just lost the word, uh, who are contingent beings. Can I ask a follow-up question? Would you say, would the position say that, so there's legitimate will there, they want to say, legitimate free will, but it's also part of God's ultimate will, um, in whatever sense, permissive or Mm-hmm. Uh, but does, do you, would you agree that means though that a choice other than that could not have been made so for instance Hitler might have chosen to do that but the option wasn't available for him to choose otherwise he got what he wanted but he couldn't have wanted anything else yes I, I would say from 
the the theist position would be that God knows the end from the beginning. And so because he knows what the end is, he also knows the events that occur up to that point. So because he knows and has determined what the end will be, that the new heavens and new earth have come and that the gospel has prevailed over evil and conquered it, that he know, all those points are, he knows what those are. Would you agree that that also but means... But that doesn't mean that we do. Yeah. Would you agree that that also means, so like if Hitler could not have chosen otherwise, because he couldn't have wanted otherwise, that also logically means that for God's plan to accomplish what he wanted, it, that had to happen. I mean, it would have been wrong for that not to have happened. God does have some kind of will invested in that event happening. Uh, that would not be a position that, not be a statement that my position would ever make. How do you get around that? <laughs> right, I mean, that's one of those things where there's an interaction between the transcendent and us. And never in scripture, even though God says, I do calamity, I cause it, never is he blamed for any evil. So the, the contingent view would say that God has an asymmetrical relationship with good and evil, that somehow he is always given responsibility for the good that happens in Scripture, and never is he blamed for anything that, that is bad or evil. Uh, like we don't know how that all works church. out. It's the moral <laughs> <laughs> take okay. Look at all the good. All right. All right. Uh, three questions in, we've already gone to Hiller. Let's hear from Bob. <laughs> That's how you know it's good. I'm wondering how classical uh, theism would deal with uh, evolution and, uh, uh, and natural law in that an earthquake happens because plates shift. And then when the earthquake happens, tsunamis develop because the plate is shifting there and so on and so forth. How does classical theism deal with that? Uh, I, my guess would be, because I, I would have to guess, uh, would be that the way that the world was initially set up to operate, that things like earthquakes and tectonic plates shifting and crashing into one another and creating an earthquake and therefore a tsunami or opening up and creating a volcano, that those things would not have happened. That those are uh, disasters. Uh, and that the world could have operated given if sin had not entered the world that the, the world could have operated without those things it's almost as if God knew that sin was going to come into the world mm. so that at the big bang that knowledge is already uh, present alright, take a pitting uh, it'll be uh, Mr. Henderson <laughs> then this gentleman, then this young lady and then that gentleman in the back <laughs> so we're, we're, we're stacking questions up now um, one question at a time. Keep it short. Well, you guys all welcome to respond. I, I, I'm trying to stack them together and let everybody else go. I'm sorry. Um, Mike, it sounds like you're presenting more of like a Greek god in the sense of there are multiple gods fighting and so forth. You find, kind of open yourself up to a polytheistic position where you have the chaos in this that God is legitimately being challenged. Granted, he may win, but that still opens you up to the position of a Greek god as opposed to an Aristotelian god, which, you know, neither one of them necessarily have to be better than the other. Question for you. Um, would be this what you have done is you've tried to remove all culpability from God with the notion of evil by appealing to free will but in your position God is the creator the, the, the creator of free will itself and has failed 100% of the time his failure is 100% mm -hmm. because all fallen sin mm -hmm. could he not have created literally created free will in such a way that we're all, we all will freely choose him 
Does that not give him some culpability? Go ahead. I'll go first. <laughs> it's definitely, uh, Chris knows this is definitely much more of a dualistic perspective than the classical theist option. Um, there are big differences, um, and there's lots of different types of dualism. There's types that obviously Christians can't hold. Um, so as opposed to like a Greek god, pantheon type, um, God in this sense is the creator, is the sovereign in a way that none of those other politistic systems work. Um, and it's, it is a temporary provisional dualism out of his free uh, creation. Um, and it's more than just God doesn't know how it's going to end, but God knows exactly how much freedom he can give or cannot give uh, for certain things to work. Um, so God doesn't, there's almost like a, a, we hate to use the word as Christians, but risk inherent in giving freedom. They could choose this way, they could choose this way. Um, but God manages the risk um, and the amount of freedom, the scope that he gives, those kind of things. Um, so I would I agree it's it's kind of a dualistic. Um, there are legitimate forces that influence the world other than God. I would say that that's the narrative, or I would say that that's the narrative that Scripture gives us. And the other option is probably more influenced by Greek philosophy, which is that God is this omni-controller um, that controls every little action in the world, is the one big source of all things that exist um, in terms of will and, and action and those kind of things. Um, but only you see in Scripture, and you definitely don't see in the early church up until time of or, uh, Augustine um, and on. Um, so, point taken. Um, I do think there are significant differences, though. Okay, Jimmy. Uh, yeah, I mean, D.A. Carson in the in the book even says uh, to hold this position means that eventually, as you look down the line, yes, God is. Uh, if He allows for evil, then He is ultimately responsible for that. And the only answer that we can give is that in Scripture, He is never blamed for anything like that. So even as he talks to like the prophet Habakkuk and says, I'm going to send the wicked Assyrians to judge my people Israel for all their wickedness, uh, Habakkuk never turns to him and says, but that's evil. Mm-hmm. He says, please don't do that. Please find another way. There's got to be another way. And then in the end, deals with it himself and says, I'll praise the Lord for where there's no blossom, where there's uh, nothing in the stall. Uh, I will be fine with it my relationship with the Lord, given that that's the only thing I have left. So that would be the response from Scripture. I don't, I don't know how to articulate my position philosophically because I don't know any philosophy. So, but from, from Scripture, that is, the, that is the point of view, that you have God saying he is going to do things to his people. Going, he's telling them ahead of time that this is what I'm going to do, and their response to them is never, but that would make you evil. So, I don't know. Sir? I was just going to ask, wouldn't uh, a classical view dictate that these bad things that happen uh, must be God's will in as much as he allowed them to happen? Right, that would be the... We're really on the same line as what Chris asked. Yes, I mean, uh, essentially, you can walk down that line. uh, But you have to also find some way to deal with how we actually do have some say-so in the things that we do. That I actually can decide to drink this or not drink this, to drive the speed limit or not drive the speed limit, uh, to have uh, the correct number of alcoholic beverages before I get in my car or too many. Things like that which actually have real effects on the outcome of things. Uh, and then from the from 
what we learn from reading scripture as a pattern, so to say that we can learn from scripture, which would be opposed to some of the things that Mike's position has articulated. (laughs) That the things that are in scripture actually set forth a pattern that we can learn from, that God is in control of that in some way. And the, the way that the out for it, the way that our position punts this question, is that it's somewhere in between how I relate to him. How I have some ability to not know what's going to happen tomorrow, but he knows what's going to happen for the rest of time as he's created it. And the interaction between me as a being who knows very little and him as a being who knows everything that ever will exist, there's there's difficulty in communication of, of how we exist together and the control that we each exert <coughs> over our own world. On behalf of my position to answer that dig, <laughs> would be that it's not so much a pattern using scripture as much as, one, again, when God controls something for Israel or steps in in a way and seemingly in some ways overrides free will, which, again, he can do. He's God, right? I mean, uh, on a large scale, we say freedom's not real if it's irrevocable. But at any point, God closed on the game, okay, if he wanted to. I mean, we don't have freedom, but he's God. You're not going to take him to court, okay? We're not going to complain about it. Um, but so you get a you get a pattern here. You want your cake and you want to eat it too. So oh, he, he creates the rules and then he can break the no, rules if I'm he wants to. Theoretically, he could. It's not like he is eternally limited, but he's chosen not to. Um, but I would say there's no pattern you see in Scripture, right? So when God does it for Israel, the teaching is not this is how God works for every event in the world. The teaching is this is how God worked for this event and this specific event. And the events in the Scripture are often very salvific, very unique in particular, right? So there's a very real reason why Israel needs to get to Egypt and get out of Egypt and those kind of things that might call for God to intervene in the world in ways that we shouldn't expect in the day-to-day, those kind of things. So it's not that we don't read Scripture, it's that we only read Scripture and we don't impose and overreach um, on text. All right, we've got other people patiently sitting on questions, so uh, yes, ma'am. Okay, so mine has to deal with with evil, um, the existence of evil as the result of the fall. Kind of Mike pointed out, and I had written this down, doesn't evil come from the evil one and if implying that that it comes from the fall does that imply that we are inherently evil because of that and if we're created in the image of God how does that how does that kind of play into the basis of the existence of evil being a result of the human fall wow that's a great question <laughs> now I would say that comes from we, we were set up as God's creatures with one thing that we could not do. So God gave us an ability to make a choice. And we don't know how quickly things happened in the garden, but we assume pretty quickly. Uh, And we chose the wrong, at least one wrong thing. So we disobeyed in the one area that we weren't supposed to. Uh, The creation, the, the theistic view would be that we do have the ability to make that choice as even as image bearers but does uh, that imply that evil comes from us then or from yes. who we were tempted by <laughs> and who were corrupted by which is an outside influence from yeah i mean the out, outside influence definitely has its role to play and that's why uh in the curse the promise comes that the one born from eve would crush the head of the serpent uh, so there's no longer going to be a deceiver. It's, the deceiver is not going to exist forever. 
uh, but then the pattern of creation through throughout Scripture also is that we will be recreated and regain the image that we've lost by disobeying. Uh, you you following up, Bob? Uh, I'm right, sorry, so Zach. I've got two questions. I'll let you pick which one you think is probably the easier. One. How does open theism not need to play in this? If the whole idea of the new covenant is that God's Spirit is transforming people's hearts. They need God to come and change them on the inside. They can't have a libertarian free will and still obey God. Then how does open theism that's founded upon this very principle not need to play the mission? And the second is if you critique the classical theist position for permitting evil to happen. When God doesn't heal that four-year-old boy, is he not permitting either he's and unable to heal the boy? or he allows it to happen. And so I don't think you would say he's unable to heal him. So in some way, you have to hold the fact that God would permit or allow evil in his plan as well. I'll answer both questions okay. for my beloved professor. <laughs> <laughs> to the second one, they actually would say God's unable to heal the young boy. Um, God wants to at 100% all the time he wants to. So as soon as the boy gets sick, it's his plan to miraculously heal him. Um, like the, that appeal of the Daniel 10 text. Um, what they would say, it's, it's a yes or no, actually. Um, is God able to in the sense that can he close the whole operation down? Yes. Um, he hasn't limited himself eternally. If he wanted to end the whole game, he could. Um, but he's unable to in as much as he's committed to allowing free agents. Well, that's the operate. Whole, you're just allowing permission. He, well, he's deciding to limit himself. Which is why, which is why open, which is why open theists say you need open theism to make this work, right? I think you could do it with Arminianism, but they would say God doesn't actually know what choices they'll make, uh, and that's what gets them off the hook in open theism. It's not that God has given them uh, this choice, knowing they'll do bad. He's given the choice, honestly, not knowing whether they'll do good or do evil. And so, what Boyd will say to Hitler is, when Hitler's created. Um, he has the option. It's a legitimate choice. So um, that's plagiarism then? He can choose to do the good without the Holy Spirit? No. Well, what open, the- open theists would do the same thing as Arminians do with, with that question, is that you still need grace and you still need the work of Christ and the Spirit, um, but that's kind of a universal type grace. Um, and it gives us all back to the ability to choose um, to turn to Christ or to not turn to Christ, enabled by his help. Okay. I've got Bob and I've got Zach, and now then I'll have... Uh, this brief was kind of a curious thing. We came back from Germany and learned there that uh, Hitler uh, was very, if not symbiotically, he was very close to his mother, who then developed a breast cancer, who then uh, had a Jewish doctor, and she died of the breast cancer, and uh, she and he blamed that Jewish doctor severely. That's just one to pass out. So he didn't hate you exactly. from the beginning. Don't know. I don't know about that. It was kind of you, you had a question? Oh, I did. Uh, how many? Yeah. I have. You can have one now, and then okay, and then you will see. Okay, to Mike, uh, what, what does your view do eschatological? Eschatologically. Yes, in that, like at the end time, God wins. Okay, does he bolster enough troops uh, to be able to do it? If he has the power to do it now, um, is he not 
allowing evil to continue, even in that. Again, they would say he actually doesn't have the power to now. Um, that he wants the world to be as perfect as it can be. Um, and if it was only within his power, that's how it would work. Um, but because of the... And Plantiga does this pretty forcefully. Because of the, the, the necess- necessity of freedom right, for this creation of love to exist, um, these things have to happen. Uh, so, in a sense, yeah, like he bolsters the troops, right? In another sense, the libertarian freedom runs its course. Um, and people are either solidified in their character as gods, or solidified in their character as not gods, um, to where, again, he's not, he's not collapsing the project underneath it by overriding any free will. Does that make sense? Mike, I have a question. Are you talking about Alvin Plantinga? Yeah. Isn't he a Calvinist? He, you he's know, it's, say what? He's yeah, he's a Molinist. People have called him a Calvinist. He has a reform epistemology, but he's actually the champion of the free will theodicy. Uh, open theists love him, uh, free will Arminians love him. Um, I had him in my office. He wrote the book on, on the free will theodicy. Yeah. It, it does, but it's not satisfactory. Got it. Let me know. Appreciate your honesty. <laughs> it is interesting, though, because a lot of people okay. wonder about that. Just quick follow up. Okay, so there. There's these powers that he has given the ability to make free choices that he does not know the answer to until some point when he says enough is enough. <laughs> I mean, is, is that what is that their understanding of how the end happens? The understanding and and, and their kind of role in current creation. Yeah, the understanding would be that in a sense, free will takes its course guided by God and by his free will. I mean, God himself has free will right in the process. He gets to in- make actions that influence Satan on the world as well. Um, so, and this is this is something that people point out, right? It seems logically inconsistent that God at one point will override people's free will, but he won't do it now. Um, why not just do it right now? What's he waiting on? Yeah, well, the idea would be he's actually waiting on free will to, to run its course. Libertarian free will is not an eternal type thing. Um, it is, in some sense, a very temporal, probational type thing um, to where... As people respond to or don't respond to his grace and his actions in the world, um, they become more and more solidified as his people and more and more solidified as not his people. Um, to, again, where for, for God to battle in maybe more extreme ways against those people would not be to cross over lines that it would be maybe right now. It is 9 o'clock. I will once again announce every 15 minutes. I know you've kind of got a rebuttal there, but Jessica's been question. patiently waiting with a question. So if we could. I'm kind of Uh, but you had mentioned earlier so that open theism that God does not do maybe things that we would see as evil uh, specifically like for a child when God sees a child dying he sees the face of his enemy doesn't use those things so what do you what does open theism do with like Second Samuel with David and his son where it explicitly says we ignore it but <laughs> <laughs> there's multiple multiple texts so we, the whole you know, deal with the whole Not just open theists. The challenge that really presents foundationally, um, 
and I think open theists would hopefully do what everyone should probably need to do, which is sometimes are clear, sometimes are not as clear. Some revelations of God are clear, some revelations of God are not as clear. With Jesus, we have the fullest revelation of God. Um, so there are there are eternal ways to interpret these kind of texts, creative ways, bad ways, better ways. Um, but we've stuck with one because we have no imagination, um, because we assume this is just how it is. God gets to do whatever he wants to do, and we have to call it good, um, or he'll kill us too, right? Um, so if God says that's good because I did it, then we say that's good too. And then he tells us not to do it because he'll kill us for doing it. And we say, okay, that makes sense. We know on paper it doesn't make sense, and but we don't tell God the score, right? We don't t- bring our calculations to him and go, this doesn't add up. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a problem. I agree. Uh, I think it's a problem for everybody in a larger sense. And I'd say as well, you have, I think what, one of the, Jimmy and I have talked for hours on this, preparing for the issue. And one of the things we come back to is you have mis- mystery in, in both. Mm-hmm. The question is where you want to locate the mystery. Um, do you want to locate the mystery in God's character, in a sense? How can he be asymmetrical to good and bad? Um, or do you want to locate the mystery in God's sovereignty? Um, how can he be in control but not control everything and have other wills in the world and those kind of things? Um, and a free will, the obviously would want to say, let's locate the mystery in other wills. And yeah, it's a mystery, and yeah, there are big problems, things like that. So that's not a good answer at all. But can I? Oh, I remembered my application to Jim for the classical theism. Then, if the position is that then that God does sometimes use these things like sickness or natural disasters, is that in conflict with the idea that we've talked? I think Mark's brought up in the sermon before, and I agree with this that you know sickness is something that Jesus is driving out of the kingdom. How does that fit in with maybe classical theism if God is using those things? Why would he use those things if those are not supposed to be a part of his kingdom? Yeah, that's a really hard question. Um, I wouldn't know how to respond to that really uh, well. Um, But you see him, even in the New Testament, whenever, so like the example of Ananias and Sapphira, those are God's people who do, who commit sin of some sort. They either want to look like they're big, grandiose givers giving all that they have, or they're lying, uh, which is the sin that Peter says that they commit. You've you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, And God takes them up right there. Um, I I mean, I don't know why you would pick some, sometimes to act in that way and sometimes not uh, to allow somebody to persist in sin for their entire life and never be repentant uh, and for some to feel the wrath of disobedience the second they commit a wrong Uh, I don't know why God would choose to do that I can't I don't don't know Okay. Um, you had a question sir? I kind of had two things the scripture says death has already been defeated when, when a child is going to die or has died, we, we focus more on the death and not what happens after, and we kind of make it about us, how that affected us. And then that goes to the next thing is, it's not about us. It's about God. It's all about God. It has nothing to, to do with us, really. How do you, which side does that kind of fall on, or is that just like to both of you? Or? We both probably want to claim that. Do what? So we both probably want to claim it. Right. Yeah, because we keep we want to ask why, but it's well, and we've who are we to ask why? We try to boil it down to two broad perspectives. 
which both have lots of different things. But even outside of this, there are lots of different answers Christians are given to this. So s some Christians will try to do that. We're just asking the wrong question to begin with. Uh, or we'll try to say, e we'll argue about the existence of evil itself. Evil is not a thing that can exist. Is it evil or is it God? Yeah. Um, evil has no real meaning in itself. Ontologically, it can't actually be there for us to talk about. What do we know what true evil is? And yeah. Um, um, I think we both want to say, yeah, you're right. Resurrection, life. Um, focus on the victory. Mm -hmm. Mr. Anderson. Mike, two-part question for you. I'll only answer part B. <laughs> the two actually go together. So, um, first question is this: With a God who does not know the future, how is that a how is that not a horrible misunderstanding of the nature of the creation of time itself? How could you be the author of time and yet not understand it? And if somehow he does not know the future, how could he not easily figure it out by knowing all variables and all? details, if you will, in past and present. In chess, for instance, uh, computers routinely beat humans. Why? Because they know all possible moves, all possible variables. It's all been calculated in, and they win almost every single time. And God knows all of the past, all of the present, all of the variables, all the details. He knows the future. Uh, God, I'm going the first, to... The first part of your question, and this is obviously, for the excuse of our an open theist question. Um, in regards to God's knowledge of the future. First one was time. Yeah, the notion of how can you be an author of time and yet not understand it. What does understand it mean? I don't understand. If you do not know the future, if you've authored time, then you've authored past, present, and future because that is the nature of space and time. So to be able to author and manipulate all you know, time, you have authored all past, present, and future. How could you have not authored part of time? How could you be somehow... And yeah, you, you end in a quandary that's it's not. I'll start with Jimmy's answer, which is you're speaking philosophy, and so there's no answer. <laughs> I mean, you can say none of that's in the Bible, right? I don't know. Um, but time, time, I don't know why you would be committed to saying time itself is created at once altogether, right? Time is a, a present thing, right? There's a, by definition, time is a future aspect. Uh, I think it would come more to the matter of creation itself. Does creation exist in all forms of time, throughout time, at, at every single moment? So does the future of creation exist right now? Or is that something that's still yet to be? That's a misunderstanding of time. Says who? Says science. Okay, explain it to me. Explain it to us. To ask, does past, present, future exist now is to put us into the present, and asking us if all of it exists in the present, that obviously would be an illogical question. Okay. Time itself ask the question of press That's what you're doing now. speak in a timeless fashion. You can't put it in the present and ask the question. Which is what you, the question you asked me, Kirk? The question is if You asked me to talk about time. Okay. Let's, present. Let's, table, <laughs> let's table the time question. I can't speak to your second, second question, part. though. Um, yeah, he did have a second part. To his which question. was, yeah, and I think that's what they would say. It's God's wisdom is what wins out. So the analogy I've heard people use is uh, Calvinism would be God... In a chess game, you use that analogy. God causes, so God wins the chess game because he actually moves the other pieces, right? Uh, Arminianism would be God wins the chess game because he has crystal ball and can see what moves the other people will make, and so he plans accordingly and wins the chess game. Uh, Open Theist would say God's just so stupid smart, right, that for every possible move on a chessboard, he's planned for that one as if that was the only possibility. So there's nothing that could ever happen that God doesn't have a perfect plan for, to accomplish his ultimate will of winning the chess game. 
but he still doesn't necessarily control which piece gets moved here or there, but he definitely controls by the end of 30 seconds, right? He taps on the time clock, game's over. Are you not defending his free will position at that which, point? Which is what? He's so stupid smart that he knows all the eventualities and so forth in his plan form all. But the God of open theism, I thought, can't possibly know that. He doesn't, there's a difference between planning for them and knowing them, right? Uh, he doesn't know which path they'll take, but regardless, he's prepared a perfect plan for both paths. Um, you and I aren't able to do that, right? That's why not knowing the future creates this kind of risk and instability for us. We can't possibly think of all the different contingencies and plan for each of them as if that was the only thing that would happen. Right, so there's no risk for him. Yes. Which you said there has to be risk in open theism. I'll shut up now. There's not an eternal risk. I would agree with that, yeah. There's risk that I don't want this kid to die, but he might die. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, see, um, with trying to, I feel like we're trying to figure out God when we can't even imagine to, to try and figure out God. When in Revelations it tells you what's going to happen. So do we, even, I mean, I know it kind of defeats the purpose of why we're sitting here trying to debate things, but it, it does. I don't know. It's not a question. I guess it's it's a great segue into my question. Why are we trying to figure out <laughs> what kind of what kind of person God would be, or what kind of God God would be, or if he, if he even knows this, or if he knows that? Uh, when in Revelation it tells us what what is ultimately going to happen, um, you know, then it's like, what is our goal? Our goal is to get everybody on the boat with God. Not to try to figure out if God knows what happened yesterday or if I'm going to take a right step, if I'm going to step on something or step in something, as opposed to taking a left step. Yeah, kind of, I don't know. I think both sides would say you see practical things come out of it. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, I ended up with a couple of practical things, but Wait. I think there is a big difference between people who think God can kill people and does often versus people who think. I'm not trying to well, figure that well, out. Well, Zach, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zach feels like that's a great setup for his question, so let's yeah, ask, let Zach ask that question. How do, this is to both. How does this affect our expectations of God and what our actions produce? Uh, can, can, I, can I attach a writer to that? Yes, you I can. Okay. Are we in a position as flawed beings to be able to make judgment on God? Yeah. Ooh. I'm going to tie that in with what Ooh. he just said. But can can then, we judge God, or should we always just accept from your position, like what you're saying? That oh, sorry, God. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I would say no. That we, you can judge God, but there would be uh, dire consequences that would be involved with that. <laughs> so, uh, <coughs> Yeah, try it out. See what. I would say. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll no, pass. I'm just I'll pass. Uh, Thank you. You actually have people in scriptures doing that. Though. Yeah, multiple I mean, times. That's they what... call God out on what He's doing and ask for an explanation. Um, and God Himself does. has committed Himself to being good, to being like Jesus. Yeah. Um, God is love. That's a very bold kind of statement. And not only is God love, God has defined love for us on the cross. Um, if it doesn't look like the cross, it's not love. It's not God. Um, I do think there's an objective element. And you see this throughout the scriptures where they say, you told us you are good, you are good, you are good, you are good. We don't praise you just because you are in the Psalms. We praise you because you are good, you have said, you have covenant loyalty. Um, so we expect you to act according to covenant loyalty, to goodness. Right. That would be my response to you as well, is that you can trust who God told you that he is in scripture. 
and he said that he is good and will never act in a manner contrary to that. And so it's whenever our expectations don't meet up with what, who God said he is that our expectations need to change not, and not question God say, oh, I'm, I'm going through something right now. This must mean that God is not who he said he is. That is a false assumption so, that we need to assume. Yeah, can I just explain? I'm trying to wrap my head around what you're saying. So eventually, at some point in not maybe not even our own lifetime, the children that were massacred at Sandy Hook will be a good thing. No, not necessarily. I mean, the death of death and destruction are are never good things. Uh, that doesn't mean that what happens afterwards so whenever christians go and mourn with people who are mourning over their lost children that that's not good but that doesn't mean that the death of a child is a good thing there's there's only one place in scripture where the joseph story where where joseph tells his brothers you intended it for evil but god intended it for good that's the only place in scripture where you have one one will that's talked about and it it was one side but no actually God actually intended it for good uh, the pattern in scripture is that God uses things for good uh, so he either uh, strengthens us through through going through suffering like Christ did uh, so it, was it a good thing for Christ to go on onto the cross to be murdered no, it wasn't. It's not good for somebody to be beat to death and then hung on the cross. But yes, it is good for humanity that Christ willingly laid His life down for us. And I think that's our call as believers: is not to say that it's good that I'm going to go and be a missionary and be killed by some people who don't believe the gospel. But it might be. It will be good that some of them come out being Christians and worshiping the one true God. Through that action. Okay, uh, it's nine fifteen. Michelle, I believe you had a question. I want to be. I want to be careful with how I phrase this question. Oh, why um, So. Few times do. Huh? Few times do. Maybe both. So, in in Islam, Allah is not bound by his character. Am I maybe I'm misunderstanding, but in the in your scenario, is the character of God somewhat a mystery? Or is he bound by his character to the point where he would limit himself in such a way as Mike's proposing? Right. It's not that his character is a mystery. Now an open theist would say that that when you're trying to flush out these things, that mm -hmm. it's God's character. That's a mystery. Okay. What D.A. Carson would say, it's not his character. He's always good. And we know that there is an asymmetry in God's character between good and evil. Mm -hmm. So we can count on him to do good, and that when evil happens, it's never attributed to him. The, the mystery is in how a transcendent being even interacts with people like us and communicates to people like us. That's where the real mystery is. It's never in God's character. You can always look to him and know that he is good and is doing good. The mystery is in, I'm looking at a situation where my, my father-in-law got leukemia. That's not good. Why, how is God good 
given this set of circumstances. Yeah. Wouldn't the Calvinist have to say it was at least his will, though? Mm. Yeah, I mean, permissively, God is sovereign over those things. Uh, but, again, because sin is the problem that exists in all of us, it is God's mercy that we exist and have been given a way to be transformed and to become like God again and to be his renewed people and that the creation is renewed. So it's, it's, it's grace that, we, that anybody can walk out and feel fresh summer rain or AC, those sorts of things. Uh, that's grace that we exist and are not immediately crushed by disobeying one, disobeying one who has such, I mean, cosmic power to look at him and say, no, I don't want to do what you want. I mean, whenever you do that to a king, they have you beheaded. But God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and deals with us patiently and doesn't immediately crush us. If I could summarize a bit uh, real quick, and this works for both of us, I think, one of the things when people get into theological disagreements is it often comes to a matter of disagreeing with um, the logical cohesiveness of what they're saying. So Jimmy and, and his position and my position will both say, that's bad, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. What would happen from my position, they just say, that doesn't make sense, given your premises. Right. Which some of the questions that, that I'm hearing, like, well, it seems like on paper you can say that, but if you follow the rabbit trail, it doesn't lead there. Um, and so, but it, I think it's a larger lesson, too, for just Christian discussion, right? Um, you often have to, even if you can't see how someone gets to that conclusion, right? If, if you think someone's conclusion makes God out to be actually Satan instead, right? But if they actually say, no, God's good and God's loving, those kind of things. And this applies, I think, to all the issues we ever talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, even if you can't agree with the logic, you have to take people for their confession um, and ultimate that thing. I have a question for Jimmy. Okay. Uh, I would love to hear, uh, given your position of classical theism this evening, I want to hear you talk about hell. Uh, because one of the things you're talking, uh, one of the themes of what you're talking about suggests that a lot of the evil that happens in the world is actually a tool for education or for purposes we can't divine uh, that would speak to a greater good that we may not have access to. However, it also there's also an implication that there's definitely people who are going to go to hell, and God already knows about that, and there's kind of no deviation from that path for them. Mm-hmm. So, is there a certain number? Should I be talking to the Watchtower? <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, it is 144,000, that's it. How, uh, how, 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 can, can you resolve that, or is it just kind of a, that's, that's the breaks? Uh, no, I mean, I won't be able to resolve that. Uh, and for for me, personally, I think God is uh, involved in redeeming his creation. I mean, I think that's the reason why we're given promises, uh, why we're told that he is good, uh, why he chooses a people. Uh, And so, uh, I mean, I don't know if hell is going to be one of those places they say that actually exists but doesn't actually have any people in it. I don't know. Uh, But again, given the position of sin, it is not bad or evil for God to punish people who have actually disobeyed him, mm-hmm. who have committed acts of treason against their king, mm-hmm. their maker, one who they were designed to obey. Uh, and so he is not found guilty for anything whenever somebody commits an act of injustice and he actually punishes it. 
so I mean, no, I I couldn't tell you how many people are, are going to be there. I think those numbers in Revelation are symbolic. Uh, twelve times twelve yeah. would be times seven. Very, times seven. Yeah. Twelve times twelve is a thousand. No, it does. No, twelve times twelve. Twelve thousand times twelve. Yeah, something like that. But, but um, <laughs> the numbers twelve and ten are in there, which are good biblical numbers. It, it's like one hundred seventy-five thousand or something like that. But that's you answered my question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you. You didn't answer my question. My blessing. Um, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Mike. You may have already yes. answered this. <laughs> I'm just not happy to answer, but uh, does the God of Ophidism care more about free will than he does maybe what's best for his creation? If And where does this idea that who says that love has to be this completely freely chosen thing when maybe it's sometimes doing the best thing for someone even if that's not what they want? Yeah, I think most of the examples that you'll give for that kind of thing is is it's like a child, right? You want a child who has free will and can love you, or a robot who'll never make mistakes and never do anything but that, but you can never receive any kind of real kind of emotion. So I think you look at the Trinity for an example, right? Persons with will and persons with mutual submission, um, and that's what makes a relationship works, um, which is why it's inherent to creation. Um, that we're able to have that same existence with God um, and hopefully be there. Um, and I do think there's something to say about, obviously, uh, giving people something they don't want, but it's better for them. Um, but I'm not sure that takes the place of free will, right? That might interrupt or, like, abrasive, like be abrasive to their free will. Um, but, yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think you have it for both sides, but I'm just thinking about this idea that, I mean, he could pull the plug on the whole operation. Yeah. But, like, what, what's the point that is that the well, child that breaks the camel's back? There are, so, like, dose of rescue. the sex trafficking entities yeah. that straw that breaks mm-hmm. the camel's back. Yeah. But that's, you have that on yeah. either mm-hmm. position, really, but. I would say there's a, there's a tendency in the open theist camp to deify free will, mm-hmm. and that becomes, like, the end-all of be-all. And you protect libertarian free will at all costs, right? God be damned, we're going to be able to make our own choices. Which makes a lot of people kind of lumping in with liberalism and, and theological liberalism and those kind of things. Um, I think there is a place for limited free will. And uh, so Boyd would say his version of libertarian free will only works in a partially deterministic world. Um, while there are free choices, choices can only be made in a determined, created order. Um, so... I'm free to jump up or sit down, but I can't jump 10 feet because I'm short and I'm white and I've made bad choices in the past in regards to eating and working out and things like that. Um, so even like creatures, free will, right? Um, even Satan and, and Adam and Eve from the beginning can only do certain things. They can't actually like jump to the moon and make choices there. Um, all free will exists within a partially determined world. Um, so... Perhaps there's avenues to explore more how you could work that out in an intelligent way. But I think that's a good point. I think that's a... uh, I'd like to ask a follow-up question to the first question I asked at the beginning. Yeah. I was nervous when you uh, were talking about prophecies, you were careful to tiptoe around messianic prophecies and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not going to ask you to expand on that, but what I would like a little bit of clarification is, um, as a Christian, I'm promised certain things. Now, obviously, I'm not in a position, like you said, to take out the court or anything like that, but we're promised 
uh, a new kingdom who were promised the defeat of death. Uh, and some of the rhetoric you've used here this evening suggests that that's less of a a sure thing and more of a uh, most likely outcome. We're, we're, we're betting on the strongest horse in hopes that they're going to win the race. Uh, so I, I would like to hear a response to that from your position. Yeah. I've tried to frame some of it in more opposite terms so that you can see the contrast between the positions. Right. I think you can get, for me personally, I don't think you have to go the open theism route right. with regards to the future to, to do some of these moves. Um, I think... So, I, all that to say, I don't think I would necessarily respond trying to defend that. Um, I do think, though, an open theist might say, in regards to how sure are the promises that are made to you, mm-hmm. I think they would point out, I mean, even in, in the real world, right, we don't always know whether we'll be saved from the sickness or not. I mean, that lines up with our experience. Um, we're promised healing, in a sense, but that healing is not always immediate. Um, and there are scriptures saying, you have not because you ask not. Ask and you shall receive. As long as we ask and we don't get um, as if there are things going on. And the, the open theist would say, we shouldn't say that's because God didn't want to give us that like he told us he did. Uh, we should say, it's a complex world. It's a war zone right now. Um, mm-hmm. We don't always understand what's going on in the larger world when we're in Baghdad under bombs. Um, but that the eventual victory is 100% guaranteed, um, primarily because of God's actions through Jesus on the cross. So um, the healing comes with the resurrection and those kind of things. Um, I guess I think it might be fair to say you're still kind of it's your best prediction that we'll all be resurrected. Okay. Um, uh, okay, I see Michelle, then I see Zach, and then I see this lady here. I'm sorry, what is your name, man? Burgundy. Burgundy? Mm-hmm. Okay, nice to meet you. I'm Jacob. Go ahead, Michelle. I uh, wanted to follow up on something you mentioned, which it sounds like you haven't, like this was kind of brought up by Jessica's question. So free will happens in a partially determined kind of, there, there are rules, there are laws that we have to follow and, and things like that. And I feel like I've, heard Boyd talk about predetermined events mm-hmm. within this, this sphere. Um, so the cross being one of those predetermined events, the creation being one of those predetermined events. Um, and I would like you to explain more of that if you can. He would say that certain events are predetermined. Okay. In like a Calvinist predetermined sense. Like, like it's this was the date, this was the time, this was the place, this was the person. Um, mm-hmm. Just that that is an aberration to the plan. Um, so how does that mesh with open theism? How is that? Right? That's what he says. He's the open theist guy. I don't know. I think the idea would be, in most cases, the pre the actual kind of predetermined thing is either an action on his part mm-hmm. that kind of in, invades the world. Okay more than overrides other free wills mm-hmm. and often is predetermined based on the already libertarian free will of people, right? So, um, with Joseph and his brothers. There's nothing mm-hmm. that says God made Joseph's brothers act like that. Mm-hmm. Um, all it says is by the time they were acting like that, God decided to use that. A libertarian free willist, free will person, would be able to say they made those decisions, they've solidified their character, Mm-hmm. At that point, there's maybe like a, again like a point zero zero one percent chance that she's otherwise, um, but God's able to predict some some pretty determined things. Predict or determine. So like with the cross, it's like I mean this is. This I think is the Boyd time. would say that in mm-hmm. cases God overrides free will, takes it away, predetermines it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in whatever sense, I'm, I'd be interested to hear what Plantinga might say about this because he does it much more philosophically. 
I, and I think in some sense what they tried to say is that if you do it only in a couple cases, mm -hmm. it protects the integrity of the whole game. Mm -hmm. Right. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just, yeah. There are only a couple of errors. But you can see how someone might say that, right? Okay like, the whole game. <laughs> yeah. All right. It is, uh, it's 930. Uh, we still have a question from Zach and a question from Burgundy. Since I'm not seeing any more desperate hands, um, <laughs> since I'm not seeing any more desperate hands, we might wrap it up a little bit here in a second. Jessica, we can, we'll, why don't you be our follow, final question for the night after Burgundy? Uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, Zach. All right. Jimmy, the classical theist view has a kind of a, a, a bad sucks to be you uh, kind of mentality <laughs> in that, you know, oh, you're not. It wasn't part of the plan for you to be one of God's children? Eh, too bad. Okay. But with, uh, I feel like with the, or I, as I'm thinking about it, the open theist view also has that in that, you know, you're born not into a Christian family. You are attacked or tried to persuaded by some sort of demonic force. God wanted to help you, but he didn't slash couldn't, however you want to fill that in. Sucks to be you. Uh, and, <laughs> what? Sucks to be you. Either way. <laughs> and then you get a, sucks to be you. Uh, like, neither one of those helps in that way. Do you, do you, do you accept that? Sure. Sure. Okay. I mean, yeah. I don't accept that. You don't? <laughs> Neither do I. I accept, that the church, I accept that the church needs to take up its call and be obedient and go oh, out as missionaries. I for you. <laughs> okay. There is a largely, from the open theism side of that question, there's a largely deterministic sense of the world that has to be acknowledged in behavior and environment and those kind of things. Um, but you still see the exceptional, right? The exception proves the rule. The, that would, that's not what I want to invoke. <laughs> but the person who's born in poverty, right? Who most people, the statistics, they're born in that poverty. They end up in poverty and end up in this kind of lifestyle in prisons, those kind of things, who make the choice, right? And are able to make and able to break the cycles and those kind of things. Um, so no matter how deterministic they would be, right, there's that sense of at some level that free will choice is there. Maybe not always activated, maybe maybe not always available, but um, determinism doesn't have the, the word at the end of the day. Okay. Even if you're born in, in a in a Muslim family in a world, right, where you never hear this or that that kind of thing. Um, there are still chances. Okay, my question is for you as well, Jimmy. So, in the notes, it says free will should be understood with the theory of compatibilism. Now, I wrote down specifically what you said, so I understood that exactly, which was that God is sovereign and is control of His world, but humans are also responsible and held culpable, morally responsible. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Yes. If that is true, does that idea? diminish the need for a savior because with open theism if it's outside influences or you know God's opposed to evil there's a need to send his son to save us to rebuild that connection with with if God is in control and we're held responsible because we're morally responsible there's no need for a savior correct right that's why it's his mercy that that we're given a savior so he could have just left us to our own devices and said, y'all will be responsible for your own will. But does, and doesn't that be... diminish it? Because if we, are, if we are morally responsible, doesn't that give us the ability? If God's in control, doesn't that just give us the ability to choose good or bad or the right decision or the wrong decision? The point of a Savior is to rebuild that connection, correct? 
Yes, the our the theistic position is that you can't make that right choice on your own. You need the Savior to come. You need to be given the Holy Spirit in order to be able to make that right decision, which is seeing that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one who is promised and but has come. God is in control of the world. Doesn't he, in this idea, have the ability to make us or to assist us or teach us in, in doing right? without a savior I guess he could have I don't I mean I guess so <laughs> that's not the world we live in we live in a world right. where he's promised a savior and has delivered and has given the helper the Holy Spirit and has left his word to teach and preach and instruct so that we become more like him uh, now yes that is the way he's determined that it be as the, the one who created it, he has the ability to say that that's the way it would be. Right. Okay. Jessica, last question for the evening. Oh, this is lots of pressure. It's not that weird of It's practical. I don't know that you mentioned it yet, but what's the function of prayer for classical theism? Uh, to realign yourself with, with the will of God, for one. Uh, since we are able to make choices, uh, prayer serves uh, not in the main function as it does in the open position to get God to do stuff for you, uh, but so that you can see who you are as a person, as one who's created, recreated in the image of Christ and can be empowered. I mean, you can ask for the Spirit to be given to you. I think that that's a prayer that will be answered. Uh, pray for things to happen. I, I mean, I don't, I think prayer is important because in the theistic position, God is one who can answer prayer. Uh, so he's in a position to do that for his children that he loves. Uh, and we can express our will in that position, in our position of, of freedom and in expressing our will of, in obedience in that way. I mean, is that helpful? Sure. Okay. okay. Uh, once again, thank everyone for coming. I want to remind you uh, that the positions that our presenters presented uh, may not be the personal beliefs that they hold. So, if you were unsatisfied, if you were unsatisfied with an answer you got on the basic uh, position or want further clarification, please don't corner them in a bathroom stall or blow up their email. There have been Pretty books big, listed here for further reading if you're very curious. Yes, sir. I was just delighted to learn that I'm the author of one of the Arminian doctrine. I wasn't even aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> His last name. On a less light note, real quick, just because we did talk about matters of faith and we did delve into some interesting questions, if anyone's personal faith was in any way disrupted, by anything that was said tonight, I encourage you, please talk to our pastor, Mike, your personal pastor, a church elder. Reach out to someone. Do not let anything that happened here tonight uh, do anything but bring you closer to God. Uh, and I hope it was worth your time to be here. Mike, would you please close us in prayer? Oh.